there's a massive weight we all feel because uh, we can feel that our country is coming apart due to uh, cruelty and inhumanity and despair. And the despair, unfortunately, is going to be with us until we can somehow restore most of the 40 million jobs that have been lost, uh, give people a sense of the future. Uh, I hope our podcast can do that. Uh, And so, you know, we had a tough decision uh, as to whether we were going to um, focus solely on uh, George Floyd um, and Derek Chauvin and um, what happened in Minneapolis and is now happening around the country, um, or to talk about uh, our vision for the future that hopefully can help address some of these issues. Uh, We think that people come to us in part for a sense of optimism and possibility um, and to get away a little bit from a depressing reality. Um, So we're going to talk about some of the things that hopefully we can make real in the future that can help improve our lives uh, and hopefully make us the kind of country that um, is coming together instead of coming apart. I will say... Just as an American, as a person, I'm heartbroken watching this. And I was talking to our our buddy Jermaine Johnson down South Carolina, and he said he cried his eyes out all day yesterday, which was Thursday, um, the 28th. And so this podcast is going to be hopefully uplifting and lighthearted, and that's that's intentional in in this very dark time. And um, but I want you to know if you're an American, you're hurting right now. We are too, um, and we feel you. We love you. Um, and we're going to fight to fix this. And I hope you guys join us. Really excited this week to sit down with Anthony Scaramucci to talk about how we're going to, to repair the economy. Uh, and uh, that's going to be the theme of this week is what we can do to try and help get people back on their feet. So I tweeted this earlier this week. We could use a citizenship portal where we can access benefits, see tax info, renew licenses, connect a bank account, fill out a census, register to vote, get updates. It's 2020. Right now, this would be indispensable and ease this pandemic for millions. Now, this got tens of thousands of likes and retweets because it seems so obvious when you see it. Uh, And I thought of this one because a friend uh, pinged me with the idea. And, you know, I have smart friends who send good ideas. So thank you for that, (laughs) Eric. Um, But also, I was literally just in the process of filling out my census. um, And uh, and I also... uh, no, like needed to figure out my absentee ballot. Um, and there are like these different interactions you have with the government. Um, and then you're like, why is this such a mess? Why is this such a weird patchwork where, uh, you know, the most direct thing was trying to get people a stimulus check of $1,200. Right. Like the best way to do that was through the IRS, through people's um, bank accounts and tax records, but millions of Americans don't have tax records. Like they, they didn't file taxes because they're like a cleaning lady or like a food truck person um, who's like just, you know, doing things on cash or, or whatnot. And does that person not deserve the $1,200? Uh, 
like in my mind, they probably need the twelve hundred dollars worse than anyone because right. <laughs> you know they didn't file taxes because they're poor. Um, yep. So, like, so to me, it's like the obvious gap is that if there was like a citizen.us where you could just get your info, um, get your refund, uh, fill out census documents, register to vote, uh, update your license. Um, mm-hmm. Like most of us are, at least I'll just speak for myself. Like I am very, very nervous when I have to interact with the government because I'm afraid I'm going to get dragged into some bureaucratic hell. Uh, now, yeah. sometimes, you know, it's easy and you're like, oh, that wasn't bad. I like paid the parking ticket and it took me five minutes. Um, mm-hmm. But other times you do get caught in hell, like let's call it renewing a passport or something. And you're like, oh, no, like I have to do what? <laughs> like, I'm, <laughs> like, what's you going what on now? From me? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember and this was a number of years ago, but like I went to Philadelphia to, to like try and expedite a passport because for whatever reason, like the office there could accommodate me in a way that um, New York's offices could not. And that struck me as I was like, is this really dumb or is it just me? It's like, why am I, <laughs> why, why am I taking a day out of my life to, to, <laughs> to, to, to do this? Um, so this would make our government user friendly. And one of the things I think is really important is that people don't trust government um, for a number of reasons, but they don't trust government for a number of reasons that I actually really sympathize with. Number one is uh, it seems out of touch and inefficient. Uh, and there is like a low degree of um, user friendliness or accountability. And so if you had a citizen portal where you interacted with it and you were like, oh, that was a breeze. And instead of having like that ner- sense of anxiety that I have when it's right. time to do something with the government, you were like, whatever. Like, do you get anxious when you go um, to your online bank account um, or your like Gmail account? It's like, no. I mean, as long as you're not expecting some like, you know, terrible, terrible. Fi- like, you know, financial <laughs> like, news or like or an email, like, <laughs> like, yeah. like you're dreading. But like you're, you're generally fine with the experience. Um, but if I were to go to like a government website, I, I would have that sense of dread. Like yep. if you can get rid of that sense of dread, that would actually be a great leap forward for our confidence in government. Um, and oh, by the way, it would actually work better too. Like in, in the pandemic, mm-hmm. if you wanted to get $1,200 into our hands, you wouldn't necessarily need to rely upon our tax info. Maybe it's just like, hey, like all you, like everyone has the citizen portal. So just go to the citizen portal and then you can identify means of payment. Like we can Venmo it to you. We can PayPal right. it to you. One of the things that strikes me as so ridiculous is uh, thanks to uh, many people who donated, literally like tens of thousands of people, but uh, most prominently Jack Dorsey donating $5 million. We have been sending money to Americans for the last number of weeks. Right. Uh, and how do we do it? It's like, well, we do it the way you would do it if you were trying to help your friend, which is via uh, Cash App or PayPal uh, or Venmo, because that's how most people send and receive money. Um, so why is it that we, a uh, relatively brand new nonprofit, um, can do something that seems like way beyond the abilities of our government. Like if our government wanted to get us $1,200, why could they not just cash up or Venmo or PayPal us? Humanity Forward figured it out. Like why is our government unable to figure it out? And, and that's like the source of frustration for many, many people that like a citizen portal could help with. My nonprofit still not received its PPP loan. And it's mainly because we... And- I'm sure it's some bureaucratic reason. Um, 
we, I mean, there's no way we, we don't even know if we filled out the form right. Like you think you did. You asked for some advice. Um, there's no rubric. Oh yeah. It's I like a black say, hole. You, you like yeah. send it to the government and you're like, will this come back? Is and this then you work. Yeah. You don't know. Um, and uh, here's the other thing we just did. So we filed, so we started humanity forward. It's a 501 C four nonprofit, which is not tax deductible. It's a charity, but you don't get a tax deduction. If you want a tax deduction, you need to have a 501 C three nonprofit. So we're creating a 501 C three. It's not political, completely separate from there. Andrew's not on the board, not related to any political candidate. Um, but in order to do this, you have to file the paperwork. And I've literally, what do you do? You Google, I mean, you could talk to a lawyer, have them do this for you, but you Google, like, how do you file for 501c3 status? And you end up in this, like, the depths of a government website following basically a long text thread, um, like a, almost like a Word document on a web page. And you end up asking yourself, is this, is this right? Is this, like, is this the right way to do <laughs> this? Am I, you know, there's no... And that to me is where the citizen portal will be helpful. It's just like the source of truth, source of legitimacy for all things where you have to touch the freaking government. And it could be designed in a way that makes you confident. Because one of the yes. issues is that if you go to some government websites, it seems like they were designed in the 90s. Uh, mm -hmm. And th there are some some agencies that are using ancient, ancient <laughs> yeah. software and operating systems. Like you hear these nightmares about how if you go to uh the irs or some other agencies they'll be like on windows 98 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or, or whatever <laughs> oh, which like which i you know I'm, I'm not like you know i i just want to get the job done so if it's working for you it's fine but like that you know but like it, it is um tough when you're not sure whether uh you're getting the right info because like the this thing seems so clunky um, uh, you know, the other part is the opaqueness where mm -hmm. like if you send a FedEx package, you get a tracking number and you can see what's going on. Um, you know, as you file like a PPP application for your nonprofit, like, do you know what's going on? Do you know what the right time frame is? Do you know like how to follow up? Can you track it? Do you know where it yep. is in their process? It's like, no, it's like send and pray. Um, so yes. it, it's like our, our government needs to have like a higher degree of, uh, ability to inspire confidence. Um, and you know, and that, that's, that, that can be something as basic as, and you and I talked about this, Zach, it's like you start your nonprofit and then no one signs up and then you just like pretty up the website and then all of a sudden everyone yeah, signs bang. up. Like I, I, I had the same yeah. experience where it's like, I started a nonprofit and then no one took it seriously. Well, I mean, whatever, like, like I wasn't investing in the website, but like when the website got uh, upgraded, then all of a sudden everyone thought it was like Ooh, awesome. They must be legit. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, this is something that would make us uh, trust government more and hopefully it could work better. So happily, people got so excited about this idea for a citizen portal uh, that now we have some people working on it. Uh, there are folks from the Humanity Forward community who have volunteered, literally like 500 people volunteered to help. Um, and uh, folks are now uh, trying to come up with what it would look like. Um, so... If you want to help out with that, you can find the Twitter thread. Um, right. There's a mini web forum, um, but we're going to work on it because that's the humanity forward way. It's like not enough to bitch about um, something and be like, oh, that sucks. Like, I mean, yeah. like we can make it better. If you want to renew your passport, I did this four years ago. If you want to renew your passport, listen to this. You have to, unless this has changed the past four years, so don't hold me this. But this is what you had to do. You had to mail your existing passport in you had to put it in the mail and send it to the government and then three weeks later you'd get it back and to me that was terrifying it was like oh you know what the last thing i need is my passport lost in the mail 
Because then what? And now you get a new one. It's a whole not- then I got to find my birth certificate. Then I got to do all these things. So, um, but that said, the government is not terrible at certain things. Like the DMV in New York is seamless. Fantastic. Fan freaking fantastic. Um, I was in and out in 20 minutes. Um, and there was a whole bunch of things that happened in that 20 minutes. So I, I do think the citizen portal would highlight the good stuff the government is doing. Um, yeah, there, there, there are there are certain interactions where you come away and you're like, oh, like that that was painless yeah. and like delightful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, we just need more of that. Yeah, and so and that uh, I think that it's almost like there's a lot of good work that happens in the government in, in ways, and they don't do themselves any favors by making it so difficult to find or it's not clear or God knows what. So anyway, that was Citizen Portal this week. The other thing you tweeted about this, Andrew. So you talked about the need for a four day work week, or some would like to say a three day weekend. Yes, I don't want. I did the math. <laughs> Either one of those works. <laughs> so I was, all right, so I looked into this and I think you know this. Like I was looking in the history of weekends and really it started, I mean, there's been, they've been around for a while, but it really was a union thing, right? Like the unions demanded like, hey, um, we get two days off. Like that's the move. And it was in the, right after the Great Depression, if I recall. Yeah, yeah. It was in the um, the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, 40-hour work week. Well, first, let me, let me explain the thinking behind okay. it, where right now, uh, our work week is getting longer, not shorter. Uh, and it's having a disastrous set of effects on millions of, of people where uh, we have this mental health crisis that we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have... Uh, this worship of work, workism, um, and uh, we're sleep deprived. I mean, you can name it. There are like all these stacked effects uh, and it's getting worse. Now, economists like Keynes projected we'd have a 15 hour work week by now because we'd be so wealthy. And it turns out he was right mm. about the level of wealth. Like, like <laughs> that, that yeah. line was correct. Um, but he obviously got the number of hours in the work week very wrong because it's been getting longer, not shorter. Um, here in the U.S. Uh, and Barack Obama actually said to me that we should be looking at a shorter work week because uh, firms aren't going to um, employ people in the same way that they have previously. So let's see what happens if you do uh, implement three-day weekends, four-day work week. The big thing people say is like, well, won't you then just do 20% less work? And that's not really the way it happens in real life where Mm -hmm. organizations actually become more productive in many cases um, if you shorten the work week. And if you think about the way most of us work, uh, we have bursts of productivity and then bursts of relative, like, I'm not really doing a whole lot right now. Um, And those bursts tend to correspond to when the deadline is, but also what our schedule is. Like, Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Um, the most productive day that anyone has is the day before they're going, they go on vacation for a while. Like, uh, like that, like that day all of a sudden is like, you know, this gets so <laughs> much stuff done. Um, Everybody knows that feeling too. Yeah. So, go to so Bahamas, this shit's getting done. This is done today. <laughs> so your productivity, um, expands or contracts depending upon the schedule. And that's why if you have a four day work week, you may get the exact same amount done as you would in a five day work week. You just get it right. done in less time. Um, so let's stipulate that productivity, let's just say stays the same, even though studies have shown it'll actually go up. Now, then, then you have a three day weekend, um, which ends up 
improving your level of rest, your mental health, your relationships, your time with family. Uh, it, it actually has even been shown to uh, help um, more evenly distribute like domestic responsibilities. Uh, mm-hmm. So that there are all of these positive effects um, and the negative effects are, as far as I can tell, quite absent in the data. And here's the kicker. It would help create jobs at the margins because if you're a firm and you have a four day work week and let's say you need coverage, um, then you might have to hire another like, you know, 20 percent of people and then like have them work different periods of time. Uh, So and right now we're in a situation where we need to create jobs in the worst way, where we're going to be short tens of millions of jobs for months. Uh, so anything we can do that's going to stimulate hiring is a win. Um, so the, the four day work week to me is something that we should be seriously looking at. And the way you make it happen is the same way you made the two day work week happen, which is you, uh, pass a law saying, Hey, guess what? Like these are going to be the expected work hours. Like, of course you can have a firm that has people work different, uh, hours, but then you have to, um, accommodate your employees in like, you know, additional ways. And like, it, it's, you know, um, frankly, so like that's the dumb question is like, is it, it's a law. And so right now we the weekend essentially structure on the 40 hour work week. You're not allowed to have a number of workers not allowed to work more than 40 hours a week if it's an hourly worker. Right. And so yeah, you, you get overtime after a certain level. Right. And so you would make overtime after 30 hours or whatever. Well, you know, you, yeah, I mean, you could, uh, you could work with the number of hours you could, uh, like there are different ways you could make the, um, the weekend longer. Uh, I I have a feeling though, that it wouldn't take that much. Um, because if you were to pass along this direction, a lot of major companies would adopt it. And then Mm -hmm. it's going to be very difficult for some companies to look up and say like, actually, we're going to ignore that. Like when literally their competitor companies are hiring the same people (laughs) are are doing, it's like, and so it's really interesting. If you're an employee, like which company you're going to choose, you're going to choose the one that that with the four day work week. Um, And so they're going to end up with like, you know, better people who are going to have the same level of productivity and higher contentment levels and better rest. You know, it's like one of the signs to me about how sleep deprived we are is that when you have daylight savings time, when you lose an hour of sleep, car accidents go up. Like literally if like you, you have like one less hour of sleep, it screws us up enough where we're actually like, you know, like a non-trivial number of us are going to like get into accidents. Right. Uh, so it's like that there's, and I'm, you know, it's fun to have this conversation right now, like after Memorial Day, because, uh, you know, it's like that three day weekend, I was saying, it's like, it's 50% better than a two day weekend. <laughs> you know, but you'll, you'll come back in, you'll yeah. come back into the office, like much more ready to go. You'll be more productive from front to back. Right. And there, there, there are many workers, okay. obviously, that like aren't in this world. It's like, so some people I know are looking at it and being like, well, it doesn't apply to me because like, I'm like, you yeah. know, I've got a job that like in medicine. Or yeah. Or, or it's like I, I get paid hourly. So like, what are you talking about? Um, so so there there have to be ways that we make it uh, like a universal basic income, uh, make it so that people are able to uh, work and not feel like they have to work themselves to the bone the way mm-hmm. that many, many people do right now. Is there an argument that economic activity will be boosted because you have more weekends? Like, do people spend, I don't know if you know these numbers, do people spend more on the weekends? I imagine, yes. When you have free time, that's when you're going to dinner, that's when you're going on vacation, that's when you're traveling, that's when you're spending more on gas, who knows. 
Yeah, of course. You know, of course we spend more more money on recreational stuff on weekends uh, than yeah. when you're working. Like, you know, all you can do is eat lunch at your desk and, and whatnot. Right. Um, it's stimulative so that, I mean, of the economy. That three-day weekend that my... is stimulative. Yep. The But I, I also think this, I think this, it clearly pinched a nerve on Twitter when you when you when you tweeted it out. So that's why I, I wanted to explore it more with you in this. And you talked about this a lot personally and on the trail of like this the why of like it, it begs the question, why are we working? You know what I'm saying? Um and I think you It's obvious, Zach. We're we're working to maximize GDP. Like have you yeah. made your GDP contribution today? To, right? If not, then fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you've kind of argued that work is activity that makes society better, um, theoretically. And now, oh, I love to work. Don't get me wrong. I, I've I've learned that the hard way, man. You work all day, you know, that Ronnie Chang thing, where like Asians don't take off, they don't stop for Christmas, they don't stop for Thanksgiving. Like that's Yang, man. Like it was like, oh man, all day. I love that. Um, you like finished your presidential run and you just kept working. Um, you're insane. But um. The iron. We were joking on our team, Andrew. The irony of we're gonna work a. Well, the irony is we're gonna work a seven-day work week to fight for a four-day work week around the rest of the country. Oh yeah, that's a pretty good summary, man. Because um, like, so, so so here's here's the thing too is like if if you have a four-day work week, um, and you're someone who likes to work, then you know what you're gonna do. You're gonna get tons of work done during those four days. And then those other three days, you're going to do different types of work on like yourself, your family, mm-hmm. your health, your relationships, your community. Like you'll find stuff to do uh, if you want to work. Like nothing's going to keep you from right. <laughs> from working, but you'll get the same amount of work done in less time. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan. I was on the fence at first. I was like, why would change this up? And I, I, I think there's a lot of arguments in the pro column and not a lot of arguments in the con column. But the, here's the money shot, Andrew. Do you pick Monday or Friday? Uh, my instinct is you pick Friday because I don't get shit done on Fridays. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I mean, another thing you do is you could just like let a company choose and then you'd have some companies uh, in effect Monday and uh, some companies in effect Friday if, if you're like a certain type of business. But generally speaking, you'd want to pick the same day for most companies so yeah. that um, so that everyone would have the benefits because one of the things you realize quickly is that weekends uh, are best when they're synchronous. If you want someone to be sad, um, you give them time off when no one else has time off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, so generally speaking, we would just pick Fridays. Um, um, I think that would be the win. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your 
internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. Let's talk about um, the economy a bit and jobs. Um, you you said something really powerful that um, a bunch of news outlets covered in their own right, which I love when that happens. Like that makes my job easy. I don't have to do. I don't have to hound reporters. You said you warned that forty two percent of lost jobs won't come back, and we're going to face something two times a great recession permanently. And so let's start with that because you in. Um, Scarmucci talk about what the hell is happening with the economy going forward. Why won't the jobs come back? There's a host of reasons why, let's say 40 to 42% of these, I mean, that's too precise. <laughs> like, so one exactly estimate I got 42%. was 42, another estimate's 40. Um, so you can say 41% uh, for fun. <laughs> um, so, so if you lose 41% of 38 million jobs, that's 15 million jobs. So why are these jobs not going to come back? Uh, some of them are are gone for good because uh, activity in that industry is going to be lower for the foreseeable future. So what's that? Retail, hospitality, restaurants, travel, uh, convention, entertainment, sports, movies, uh, travel, pretty much anything in that zone, you're looking at cutting significant numbers of jobs for the foreseeable future. Macy's furloughed 130,000 employees. How many of those employees are they going to bring back? Well, it turns out they had dozens of stores they were considering closing anyway that were closed for a while and now are really hemorrhaging money. And it turns out that mall foot traffic is down 30%. So what are they going to do? They're going to get rid of that store and then they're not going to bring those people back. So you extrapolate that through the economy and you wind up with millions and millions of jobs that are just gone for good. Now, the the next cause is that many companies are trying to use this time to hasten adjustments that they were looking at making anyway. And those adjustments tend to cost people jobs. So this is automation in large part. Uh, you know, if you can get things done with software and autonomous vehicles, uh, then you do it and then you have fewer people. Uh, and so you make those moves now, you make those investments now. Now, the, the third thing is that uh, like a, a lot of businesses have abandoned any sort of expansion issues or like like you're looking at just this massive depressed economic environment. And so people that had job offers have them disappear, like hiring plans have completely changed. If you're running a, an operation right now, uh, you're taking as little risk as possible um, and you're looking around and saying, wait a minute, you know what? Like that that person that I've kept around, um, I, you know, I wasn't sure that that I was going to um, 
keep them around anyway. So like, you know, let, let me just not bring them back. Uh, you know, it's like if you have a typical organization with, let's call it like a hundred people, you might've been looking to cut the bottom 20 anyway. Uh, and so now is the time to do that, uh, because of the business climate. So those three forces, uh, are going to make it so that 40% of these jobs do not return secular, uh, industry change, automation and acceleration of investment and, uh, accelerating the unpleasant staffing choices that you are putting off um, for a rainy day and now it's pouring rain. So those are some of the big things that are going to keep many, many Americans on the sidelines. And this to me is the central challenge of this time is if you look at 15 million plus jobs gone for good, you're looking at something almost two times the scale of the Great Recession, which took us years and years to try and recover from. And then you get into the family where they lost their job, let's call it like the bartender job or the uh, nail salon or whatever it is, uh, there's like a period of time where that person can be okay. Uh, Let's call it two to three months. Um, But then after that time passes, things start to go south in many, many ways, not just to their personal financial situation and savings, uh, but in terms of their attachment to the labor force. Uh, where people are a bit like muscles, where if they don't get used for a while, they tend to atrophy. Um, And this is evidenced by people just dropping out of the workforce. Right now, Mm -hmm. we have the lowest labor force participation rate, the lowest percentage of Americans working right now than in recorded history. Uh, It's something like 51%, something incredibly low. Uh, and that's the disaster because if you translate that into people just dropping out of the workforce, uh, you wind up with dysfunction to the roof uh, in that home, in that community over time. So we have to try and hook people back into the workforce as quickly as possible at a mammoth scale, millions and millions of jobs. Uh, this to me is job one. Like we very urgently need to try and supercharge the household uh, that right now is look at, as try is balancing whether they're going to keep on um, working and looking for a job or whether they're going to drop out. So my brother works in private equity, and one of the things that they talk about is that the best time to really understand your business is during a recession because the dumb money is out. So like, what he meant by that is that, so in a recession, people are only spending what they really want. So if they're gonna open up their wallet, they're spending for the, the raw core aspect of your business. Um, and to your point, that's probably what happens with these, with these massive companies is that we figure out exactly what people need in the 21st century. There's no more fluff. Um, and we move on and we evolve our business model from there. And to your point a lot is that that probably doesn't require as many people as before. Well, here's a basic one that everyone can understand. How many of these companies are going to try and operate with less office space, less commercial office space? A ton of them. So many of them, maybe all of them. And then, so if you have fewer people that are going to the office on a given day, does that impact jobs? Heck yes. Think about all the people that the building employs to clean, to operate, to repair, and then all of the businesses around that office that serve the workers every day, like the food trucks, the umbrella salesperson, the shoe shine, like whatever the heck it is. Uh, 
all of that goes away because now you're in uh, your company saying, you know what, like, I don't need all this fancy office space. Uh, and then what does that do to commercial uh, rents? Obviously, they'll go down and plummet. And then you'll look around saying like, well, then like what's going on with this commercial district? Like there are all of these cascading economic effects of these companies adopting uh, lighter office foot- footprints. Right. You, you and Scarmucci talk about this. You talk about a pre-vaccine economy and a post-vaccine economy, right? We're like the pre-vaccine is literally what we're going through right now, where it's like the social distancing piece. Companies are reeling. We're not sure what's happening in our business now and in the future. And then post-vaccine, his argument was after the Spanish flu, we had the roaring 20s and the economy just literally roars back because of the like the pent-up demand. Let me ask you this. Is that pent-up demand... It, I'm assuming it's not going to be anywhere close to enough, but how much of it is, how far short is it going to fall? Because you know it's going to roar back in some way, right? Like how how short is it falling, uh, even if we see like rapid demand increase once there's a vaccine? We're going to put up historic growth numbers because right now we're coming off such a low base. Um, to me, the question is, how does the average American family feel that resurgence in growth and can they participate? Right. So if you're that unemployed uh, worker, like, you know, does the resurgence bring you back with it? Um, I think both of these things are going to be true. I think we're going to have massive, uh, g- massive looking growth numbers because, again, we, we just hit like record declines. Can't so worse, if you have yeah. even halfway back. Um, someone called it like the reverse check mark. It's not going to be a V. It's going to be like the V down and then like half of the V up. Hmm. Uh, and so you can make an argument that that half of a V up is very dramatic growth, which it will be. Uh, you know, it's like if you go from no everyone stuck at home to like 70% of people leave the home, then it's going to look great. Um, right. But then the gap is still going to affect millions, even tens of millions of workers that are not going to be able to participate in the recovery. So both of these things are going to be true. And there are certainly going to be finance types on CNBC crowing about how how unprecedented um, the growth numbers look, Um, but more and more people are going to be left out. And that's really what we have to plan for and try and accommodate right now is to try and not miss the millions of uh, workers who just got kicked out of the workforce, you aren't going to find a way back in. Right. And in my mind, there is no way to do that that does not involve massive government intervention. Right. Like the private market will not bring all these people back in. Well, they've already, the private market already failed the people. And now we have this, right? Now that the, the hill declines even steeper. Do you think, how's this affect the election? You know, I thought like, hey, if this is going to all just go skyrocketing, Trump's going to mismanage his way out of this and doesn't matter who the Democrats run as long as it's relatively palatable to most Americans. They're going to want their restoration of normalcy in government. If the economy's roaring like that, Trump have a shot. Where's your head at um, as we head into November? Right now, I think that um, Trump's the favorite to lose, uh, you know, and and it, it almost doesn't matter who's against him. Um, where millions of Americans have just decided that uh, this is not the leadership we need or the direction we want, and we're going to make a change. I think it's going to be a referendum on Trump. I think he loses. I, For our sake, I hope you're right. And um, for conservatives listening to this, it's it's less about the candidate and more about just fixing the country, you know? And like, we've clearly seen what type of leadership we get now, you know? Um, and it's hurting us. So 
Um, anyway, Andrew and Anthony Scaramucci, the mooch, talk about the economy, talk about the future of jobs, talk about um, what I this love, new normal looks like. I love the mooch's perspective because he's not just a financier, but he's an entrepreneur. He's an operator. He like you know uh, runs normal businesses like restaurants. Yeah. Uh, he's from a construction family on Long Island. Like, uh, you know, he, he's not some asshole who's like sky high and like, you know, just staring down at the economy through a bunch of uh, screens. Like he actually understands <laughs> yeah. the real economy. Yeah. He's also, he's kind of, I mean, he can be political, but he's relatively apolitical. Like he was for Obama and Clinton, but he was Mitt Romney's finance director. Like that's the the spectrum for him. He's pretty down, pretty much down the middle um, which I think is a helpful perspective on the economy today where you know that he's just going to call it like it is. Um, he worked for Trump speaking. for what, 10 days, something like that? I can't remember. Yeah, and now, now you don't like Trump. <laughs> like, uh, they talk about that a little bit too. So tune in. Uh, Anthony Scarmucci joins Yang Speaks. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Welcoming to Yang Speaks. The founder of Skybridge Capital, the co-chairman of SALT, Anthony Scaramucci, the mooch. Welcome. Hey, Andrew. Great to be here. I don't have my math hat on, but I want you to envision me with a math hat on right now. Okay, singing your praises. Oh, thanks, man. Most of the listeners can't see you, so we can just pretend it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. They can. They Then they won't see that I live like Oscar Madison in my, uh, my home office. You can see like I'm blown to pieces here because we're... Haven't been able to move in a while, but but uh, it's good to be on. Thanks for including me. Oh, and you know, having a stack of books behind you just makes it seem like you read. So you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Just, they're just props, Andrew. So I owe you a debt of gratitude, Anthony, that you were one of the people that uh, pointed out the scale of this coronavirus uh, crisis's impact on the economy and said, like, look, we're going to need to go much, much bigger to dig our way out of this. And you compared it to a post-war period. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I appreciate you bringing it up. I think, I think coincidentally, we got on the show together with Don Lemon. I know you're a contributor over there now. 
And Don brought me on because I had just done a piece for CNN.com. I had done an analysis of the adjusted gross income of all 50 states on a per capita basis and then reverse engineered into what the whole looked like and what we needed to do if we were going to solve the crisis for the preponderance of the American people. And at that time, they were talking about a trillion dollar stimulus. I said it had to be $3.2 trillion. And obviously, a big component of it was ideas that you championed during the campaign, which I think are going to be, you know, it's that classic thing. You're the classic entrepreneur where people look at the idea, they say, okay, that's crazy. And then all of a sudden, they recognize after doing a derivative analysis of the idea, how brilliant it actually is. And so uh, I think you are going to change a lot of the ways people think about economics and you know, you probably know this about me. Maybe you don't. I've been a lifelong Republican. I consider myself a moderate Republican, sort of very socially progressive, but, you know, more for uh, pro-business ideas and keeping regulation on point, not overly regulating things. Um, and so you, when you look at universal base income and things like that, you're like, okay, well, that's incredibly socialistic. But when you really analyze it, it's one of the more capitalistic and it's one of the more individualistic things that people could do in a society. And it's, it's right in the tradition of the Western canon of individualism. And if we can get the society to a point where we can even out the playing field a little bit, I think good governments uh, should be in the business of creating or helping to flatten out opportunity. You know, I'm not for equal outcomes. Uh, I can tell from your writing and your speeches, you're not either. But the notion of trying to create more fairness in terms of the starting blocks in a society and creating more equal opportunity or a flatter playing field in education, flatter playing field to get our lives started, uh, boy, you, you've, you've done some very compelling things. So my, I, tip my, I tip my math hat to you. I've got my hand on the bill of a math hat tipping it to you. Well, I, I, I appreciate it. Uh, you've really to me, done something very valuable, pointing out the scale of the whole uh, based upon what it's going to do to people's livelihoods. And like you said, I mean, we're, we're I think, 2.8 trillion into this thing now. You projected it needs to be at least 3.2. Uh, and what I'd love to unpack with you, Anthony, is what the heck we're going to do to rebuild the economy uh, moving forward. Like you worked briefly at the, the White House. but So let's say that you and I are... Uh, in the White House, like at, in a conference room, shooting the shit at, at uh, like January 2021. And well, we're faced every, with this. I was only there for 11 days. Every second in the White House is valuable to me. But go ahead. I'm imagining it. Well, I mean, we might be able to double your 11 days pretty, you know, just okay, by there, having you there, like, there, hey, there you hang, uh, hang if out. You become, if you become president, one of my requests, I'm going to help you next time. But one of my honorary requests is you just have to make me a White House employee for 12 days, okay? And I, by the way, that's fine. I could be in the basement serving food. It's okay, but just want to try to That's a very reasonable legacy. ask. I got it. Usher, <laughs> 12 days, Usher, Anthony Scarabucci. Uh, so to, to me, we're, we're facing this giant hole still in the economy. Uh, and I'm upset that the vast majority of this 2.8 trillion that's been authorized uh, seems like it's heading in some directions, not others. Uh, it, it seems like... A small fractions going straight to the uh, pocketbooks and wallets of the struggling American on the street, uh, who literally could be on the street pretty soon. So I was with uh, uh, an economist yesterday, and he said that 
Uh, 42% of the jobs that have been lost thus far are not coming back, according to their analysis. So if we've lost 33.5 million jobs uh, throughout this crisis, um, and let's say 40 to 50% of them are not coming back, which I see as very, very reasonable, maybe even optimistic, because if you look at the types of jobs that are gone, and then you look at the business climate moving forward, if you're an employer right now, are you going to be hiring? Are you going to even bring people back? Like, or are you going to be looking to try and scale back your expenses, wait it out? Like, you know, I mean, you have to be vital to a business right now for someone to be like, yeah, I'm going to bring you back or hire you. Uh, and many, many of these jobs that have been lost are in industries that are going to be contracting significantly for a long time to come. I mean, brick and mortar retail, airlines, cruise ships. Uh, bars, restaurants, concert halls, convention centers, like you name it. Like it, it, how many of those businesses are really going to be back 100%? In my mind, virtually none of them. So if you're looking at a whole of, let's call it 15 million jobs or so, which is about what, like 42% of 33 uh, million. Um, so if you're looking at a whole of 15 million jobs uh, and people's way of life are deteriorating, you know, in each of those households, because they're looking around being like, all right, I, I don't have a job and my old employer is not bringing me back. Like, what is the plan? We need like a Marshall Plan scale initiative to rebuild no the country. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about, because I feel like you've got one of the sharpest minds around uh, these issues, uh, business, finance, market. So the U.S. government stepping back, Skybridge economic analysis They've got $12.7 trillion available. Uh, I like a lot of elements of it, Andrew, but the UBI element needs to be higher. Uh, you remember from our conversation, I was saying 3,000 an adult, 1,500 a, uh, a kid. They went with 1,200 and 500. It's just not enough money. And so what's gonna happen is it's gonna create a lot of economic anxiety as we get into the summer and fall uh, where people are going to miss rent payments or they're going to miss important needs, potential services for themselves. A lot of companies are looking up and saying, wait, why am I paying all this money for these offices when it turns out that people working from home is as efficient or uh, more cost efficient in various ways? I mean, and then you think about vacant office space, that impacts a lot of other parts of the economy, obviously. I mean, if you have, you know, like think about all of the um, the food trucks, the uh, cleaning services, Absolutely. like the, the power lines, like, like all, all of that stuff that, that goes in um, to keeping that office uh, up and running, like all of those jobs go out the window. Uh, I, I want to return to a couple of things because I'm I'm uh, I love talking to you about this stuff because you have like a very, very uh, firm grip on the numbers. So let's say that that we're down. Uh, let's call it, you know, 33 million jobs or something like that. And then you look up and say, wait a minute, roughly half of them um, can be rehired by these businesses that are having their payroll and their costs essentially guaranteed for a year um, by the PPP funds. So if I'm a, a small business and I've been a small business owner, so I remember this. So you'd look up and say, OK, I can apply for a certain amount of money. Well, number one, first of all, I'm of course going to say I'm going to rehire all of my people because that gives me more money. Like, am I going to do it? We'll see, whatever, who knows. But right now I'm in survival mode. So if I can get a hold of some cash, I'll do it. Uh, and then when it, it comes time to rehire people, 
um, certainly, you know, if it makes sense by the numbers or, uh, you know, it's like it, it's easier for me to rehire someone. And let's say I don't need 100% of my old workers again. Let's say I only need 80. Like, it sounds like I might rehire that last 20 uh, just because, well, they're being paid for and I don't want to defraud the government or, you know, or whatever the issue is. So I'm just going to rehire them. But then let's say the demand at my business is actually lower and then as soon as this year elapses, I'm going to right size it. Um, like, like my employees are actually paid for for the year, but as soon as that year is up, I'm gonna look around and say, hey, that 20% uh, needs to go. Um, yeah. to, to me, that's going to be a very reasonable situation that many businesses will find themselves in because they're working in a, a space that is not going to go back to full demand because of what you described as residual permanence. So, uh, Am I right in saying that a lot of the that 17 million, um, uh, a lot of those 17 million jobs that are going to be preserved by PPE, that we might see like a second tranche of job loss when those uh, those PPP funds uh, no longer apply, approximately a year from now? Well, I mean, yes, of course. You know, you'd have to take a permutational outcome analysis and you'd have to say that what you're saying is a very large percentage. I mean, I've made most of my money, if not all of my money, Andrew, on statistical outcomes and betting certain statistical outcomes pursuant to U.S. markets and global capital markets. And so as a someone that studied the economy for 31 years as a you know trained macro economist, you'd have to say that there's a percentage of what you're saying could happen. The flip side is something similar could happen what was happening in the 2008 financial crisis. And what was that is that you had this sort of silly putty activity where the growth wasn't uh, typical to a normal cyclical recovery. Uh, remember, normal cyclical recoveries measured over 120 years, you would get a 6 to 7% bump in GDP. Go back to the Reagan years. Go back to when the economy recovered after Bill Clinton took office, after the tax program went in in 93. But the economy sort of silly puttied out, stretched out 1% to 2% growth over 11 years. You know, picked up a little bit when uh, President Trump cut taxes and he got a little bit of a sugar bump in the economy for 17 into 18 and 19. But it's really been a 2-ish percent growth number. And so why is that? Well, that's because you've got massive, and I mean massive, governmental stimulus. And so the great irony uh, to my friends on the right, who are quote unquote free marketeers and don't like governmental intervention and all this other stuff, let's deal with the world the way it actually is and not the way they want to pretend it is. And let's look at it for exactly what's going on. We have had government, sizable government intervention in our equity capital markets and in our economy since 2008. We've just injected another sizable dose of that here in 2020. And so what will happen, in my opinion, is yes, there'll be some people that the PPP's over, they'll get fired, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet, and this is why I think you are, have foretold the future in many ways, that there'll be other landing spaces for these people to drop into over time. And I think that the big problem that we have when we're thinking about the world is that we're trained 
biologically to think linearly. And so we say, okay, this is what happened. And so this is what's likely going to happen in a linear movement. And I can give you global historical examples of that. So Thomas Malthus, for your listeners, he was a British economist in the 1830s. He said, man, we got a serious problem on our hands. Uh, we're we're going to starve. Our population is growing exponentially. We can only produce the food in a linear sort of way. And so we're going to end up starving. And that was a Malthusian proposition. And he got it wrong because he wasn't thinking exponentially about the society. He wasn't thinking about all the growth, the innovation, the irrigation, the genetically modified foods. And lo and behold, 250 years after his demise, we have more people that are affected by obesity. They're dying from obesity-related illnesses than they are from starvation. Uh, you and I are, I'm older than you, uh, but I can take you back to the 1980s where uh, a economic professor of mine said peak oil theory. We're running out of oil. By 2015, there'll be no oil. 30 years from now, prepare for the worst. And uh, and we didn't have that happen because we had all of this exponential innovation that took place, fracking, uh, satellite technology. It was able to look for oil in places we didn't even know it existed. And, you know, come on, we had oil in a negative Cotango position last month where it was minus $37 a barrel. And so so what, I, what I'm cautioning people of, yes, your analysis in a linear perspective is correct, but then you're not factoring in more ponderous governmental intervention. You're not factoring in changes to tax policy that will incentivize these people. I do predict, again, I'm a small restaurant owner, minority owner in a restaurant. I do predict that they're going to pass 100% deductibility on business lunches. Uh, that will come in the next wave of legislation because it is a surefire way to engage those restaurants. 100% people tax up. deductible business lunches. This is the first I've heard of this. I can't believe that the government's going to pay us to eat out. Um, well, or, well or they, they, the they, they did it. They did it up until the 1987 tax reform. And uh, and they, they abolished it in 1987 and they brought it down to like 50 percent. Now it was it went from 100 percent to 25 uh, to to 50. But I think it's going back up. I think they're going to allow you to write that off on your business because they're going to want to stimulate. Talk about people that have really been hammered, Andrew. Think of that bartender, that waitress, the cleaning staff. I mean, they have been hammered. And, uh, you know, if you talk to Tommy Colicchio or some of the big celebrity chefs, they're like, man, they may, th these restaurants, they're going to need something. That's a way for the government to stimulate business activity. So all I'm saying is don't think about this literally because exponential things are going to happen that are going to seismically change the way things go on. Because you're an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur. We know how to do more with less. We're both have Swiss army knives in our mind. You know, I'm blown from the White House. You know, typical guy probably wouldn't have taken it the way I took it. I mean, I got pretty tough skin. I just flip to another, uh, you know, device or tool in my Swiss army knife, go back to work. Point being is there's, there's a lot of resiliency out there that people are underestimating. Well, certainly by the time a year elapses, things may be different. And that's what I'd love to pick your brain about is that if you were to say, look, here are a couple of the measures or uh, three or four of the measures that you think that we need to adopt so that we help create more opportunities for that bartender, uh, that cleaning person, 
the nail salon owner uh like what what does that look like because for for me uh to me it's got to be jobs 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 i mean if you've wiped out tens of millions of jobs uh we need to get money into people's hands because you know there's no time to wait and it it seems like you agree with me on that um totally i think i think you are one of the nation's leading economic thinkers on that issue and your presidential campaign forced me intellectually to really study what your proposals were. And I, I confess this to you and I confess this to the uh, Yang gang and don't be mad at me. But when I first heard it, I was like, okay, that's ridiculous. That's going to create a ton of lazy people and non-invested people in the society. And so that was my first reaction. And then I said, okay, let me look at this thing. This guy's a very compelling guy. He's very articulate. I need to understand where he's coming from. And then I started to peel the economic layers off of what you were saying intellectually. And I'm right where you are. I may even be worse than you at this point in terms of the level that needs to be distributed if you really want to create more fairness in the society and calm down the indignation of people related to the wealth gap. And so, so you know, your what you're saying and what I totally agree with and I try to reference in that stimulus editorial that I wrote is you're going to need a little bit more money. You're going to need a little bit more assistance. If you took the numbers that the government's talking about and you divided it by the per capita, it's about $7,000 a person for the stimulus. Yeah, it's and if, you just, if you just handed it to the people, uh, would that be a more efficient way of doing it than the way they're doing it right now? And the answer is obviously yes, but you know uh, our legislation, legislative process is a sausage factory and there's people in there with their fists and a grab bag. And you know from history, when we had the uh, war in World War II, the claim to fame that raised Harry Truman's profile was that he started a commission in the Senate to analyze fraud from all the war munitions and all the war contracting that was going on where people were in there stealing from the government. And and so that's going to happen again. I mean, it's unavoidable. Uh, but yes, more UBI, a lot more jobs training. We need a 25-year plan to rethink our K-12 through public educational system. We need to right-size it and make it fairer. Uh, if I grow up in Scarsdale or here in Manhasset, New York, I've got the luck of the draw where I'm going to have a very good public school system. But if I grow up in a certain area, as Condoleezza Rice says, you tell me the zip code of the child, I can tell you whether or not they can get a good public education or not. And a society as rich as ours, we need a better intellectual policy discussion about that, less centered on unions, less centered on self-interest, less centered on business people or unions for that matter. I'm not picking on any one group. It has to be right or wrong, Andrew. What I enjoyed about your campaign, once I started studying it, is you're really focused on right or wrong policy. You're not really focused on left or right policy. I mean, I'd be interested to ask you a question. Why are you a Democrat? Like, how did you become a Democrat? I can tell you why I'm a Republican, even though I don't even fit in the Republican Party anymore. I'm a Republican because the unions, my dad was in a union here on Long Island 41 years as a blue collar crane operator, hourly worker, and anybody that's lived out here in Nassau County knows that the unions were controlled by the Republican Party. 
So when I was a kid growing up, my dad was a staunch Republican for those reasons. And he was like, you know what? You're a Republican. And oh, by the way, you're turning 18. Yeah, that's great. You're registering as a Republican. I said, okay, if that's helpful to you, dad, then that's what I'm going to be. That's how I became a Republican. How did you become a Democrat? Well, certainly not anything like what you just described, because my parents weren't <laughs> political at all. My parents immigrated here and uh, pretty much uh, ignored uh, domestic politics. Um, for me, no, uh, I remember being excited about Clinton's election in 92. Uh, and uh, um, I aligned with Democrats on social issues uh, around um, choice and other things. And so it just be became very... Uh, natural. And of course, like you, I mean, I grew up in the New York area, at least my part of New York, I felt like was democratic leaning. Um, but you're, you represent a type of um, business owner mentality that I also really embrace and resemble because I've run a, a small private company. Um, and when you're in that context, it's all just about the facts. It's like, you can't talk yourself into anything. <laughs> you know That's I mean? the thing. Like, you know, I think you know, if you decide to run again, I don't know what your long-term plans are, but uh, there's a wave coming and it will be a post-partisan wave. It'll be an exhaustion of this North going Zach, South going Zach, smashing into each other, arguing it out on cable news, lots of nonsensical policy to something that is more advanced than that. Something that's more data-driven and something that's more thoughtful that will re-engineer aspects of the society that are in sorely need of a refreshing. And so if you decide to run again, there is a window, in my opinion, and there's a line to go through of a post-partisan. You'll have to pick one of the two parties, Democrat or Republican, because the way they've locked this thing up, it's a full-blown duopoly. Uh, but you can take that lane. And, and if you're thinking about it in multiple decade periods of time, which I know you are, you can really improve a lot of the things that are going on in America. And I hope that happens. Beyond the things that you and I have just talked about, like what are the things where you're like, look, here's where, where we should um, try and lead the country in terms of like big policy proposal, where we should be allocating some of these hundreds of billions of dollars. I would say what you said, jobs, 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 whatever makes that happen. But I really believe we have to have a transformative infrastructure policy. We could do it off balance sheet too. You could go to the Fortune 500 and you could say, okay, listen, Apple, you've got 150, 170 billion in cash. Drop 50 billion of that into an infrastructure bank and go to each of our nation's greatest businesses that are sitting on cash piles, give them a tax incentive to drop it into an infrastructure bank. And then we could go out through the private sector, lever that infrastructure bank, uh, you know, and you could have a three or four trillion dollar infrastructure program that is actually backed by the public sector, you know, the private, private companies, sector. I should That's say. incredible. And, and I love uh, it. So, I mean, that was an idea that I had, and we tried to get it into the tax reform bill. But, you know, you've got special interests and, uh, you know, listen, I mean, you know, you know this from politics. The Democrats, you know, they love the idea, but they're not going to implement the idea because they don't want to make Trump look good. You know, it was, it was that sort of thing. But I just want you to imagine. It'll make Joe us, look good. <laughs> well, yeah, but I just, okay, but I just want you to imagine us going to companies and say, listen, we'll give you a 10-year tax abatement. 
You can repatriate your capital back into the United States, but you got to give it to us for 10 years. And, you know, I've studied infrastructure. And so just quickly for your listeners, the big dig in Boston, when I left Boston, when I came out of Harvard Law School in 1989, they were starting the big dig. They said it would cost $2 billion and it would be done by 1994. It cost $22 billion and it was done by 2002. And so the cost overruns were astronomical. The graft was astronomical. The corruption was astronomical. But let me tell you something, okay, that $22 billion was incredibly well spent because 16 new suburbs grew up in the metropolitan area around Boston. It improved the technological hub of I-95 immeasurably. The tax revenues went up. The, uh, the prices on people's homes went up. It had an unbelievable multiplier effect in terms of the economic rent it deployed. Um, and again, not to overly wonk out on you, but go back to the moon landing, $25 billion of 1969 dollars, which is approximately $400 billion today. Uh, John Kennedy, nine years, land somebody on the moon. Uh, the positive externalities, GPS, not, you, you picked up Tang and aluminum foil and post-it notes, you got those, but you also innovated the internet, innovated global telecommunications, uh, created GPS. I mean, you you had, according to Douglas Brinkley, the American historian in his book last year, he calculated $1.4 trillion of positive externalities from the technological innovation required by our nation to put somebody on the moon seeped into the private sector of our economy. So I'm sitting with you. Oh, I- infrastructure will pay for itself in, uh, in any number 100%. of ways. And I'm sitting with you. Hopefully you're the president. And I would tell you, infrastructure, 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 let's go do this. Because if you really want a lasting legacy for your young children and my young children, we need to come up with a creative financial way to re-energize the infrastructure. I, in our I, I love it. I mean, uh, to me, this was shocking uh, that Trump didn't at least build a ton of stuff just to put his name on it. I thought this would be a slam dunk for him. <laughs> <laughs> I think he wanted to actually, we, you know, you know, I think he wanted to. He was just getting blocked left, right and center. And you may remember this uh, day one. They wanted him to go for health care reform. He wanted to go for tax. Uh, they wanted him to go for health care reform. I had a conversation with him in late December when they were coming up with this. And he said, so what do you think we should do? And I said, well, if I were you, I would go for a very small bipartisan win. I, 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 th- I thought you could get an education reform bill together that both parties would be forced to go alongside of. And I said, I, I would go with the infrastructure stuff because you can get both parties in there. It's traditionally then, bipartisan. I mean, like, you know, yes, Republicans exactly. see it and, and then just, like, all of a sudden it, yeah. now you're, mar- you're the marketing czar. You're repositioning yourself as somebody that's not in the partisan rancor. And you're not in that fight, but they convinced him to go with Medicare. And I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry, not Medicare, uh, healthcare. Um, and here's what I would say to you: is you know, it's a true statement, and people will be pissed off at me for saying it, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, his lack of political experience caused him to overly trust people that were politicians. And so they were fighting their usual tribal battles and usual tribal fights. So they were going after each other, smashing each other. And if he had stepped above the fray and done something bipartisan, 
you know, he could have been the person that was transformational and sort of led them out of the ridiculousness and the polemics that we're exercising right now. But anyway, that didn't happen. And uh, here we are. And I got my ass blown out of the White House after 11 days. So what do I know? But before we go, I just want to personally applaud you because uh, uh, I thought it was a very bold initiative to run for president. Um, You brought ideas to the table that were fresh and innovative. And uh, I think you have a very, very important voice in the American business, political and sort of cultural zeitgeist. So um, I'm a big fan of yours, Andrew, and I really big honor for me to be on your podcast. And I I want to stay in touch. I hope that uh, I'm looking forward to watching your future unfold. I know it's going to be a very bright one for you. Thank you. And, you know, we're going to be uh, we're going to be very busy. Uh, you know, we have a lot of work to do, you and I. And I would love to work with you on this and I'm many other things, because th- this is the great project of our age. I love your time horizons, too. You're like, we're going to be at this for 25 years. No one thinks that long term anymore. <laughs> except for well, We you. don't have a choice, though. I mean, I'm just telling you. I say, well, the Chinese do, Andrew, you know that the Chinese Communist Party as a plan 2049, they started that plan about 10 years ago and where they want to be metrically for their economy and their people by 2049. And so U.S., we used to have long term thinking. The Marshall Plan was a long term thought. The moon landing was a long term thought. The strategy of containment to end uh, the repression of communism, Soviet style communism was a long term thought. But today, our politicians think in like two minute sound bites fighting it out on cable TV. We need to get back to that longer term thinking, uh, which is sorely needed to refresh the society. America 2.0, Anthony, that's what we're going to christen it. We're going to say it's America 2.0 in the 21st century. Well, thank you. All the best to the family. Stay safe, stay healthy. And uh, yeah, like appreciate the heck out of your time. God bless. All right, Andrew, be well. 